You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Bob from Talkin.com. This is Chrissy from Eat, Sleep, Breathe, Fight. Hi, this is Tom Drake from Maple Money, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. It was a big vat of maple syrup, and it was boiling. And my mouth started watering as I looked down, and the guy took a ladle and ladled it off into long strips on a block of ice. And as I watched for a minute or two... I waited for it to cool, and then he took a popsicle stick and wrapped it around that long strip of maple syrup and handed one each to myself, my wife, and my two kids. And I took a bite, and it was this wonderful mix of sweet and hot and cold all at the same time. And I looked around at the European architecture, and I was like, this could be a different country. And then I realized it was a different country because I was in Quebec City. And I know that often people from the United States almost think of Canada as if it's the same country. But there are differences. And sometimes those differences are obvious. Like when you're in Quebec City or Montreal, the differences are quite apparent. People are speaking a different language. The signs are written in French. But in other parts of Canada, sometimes you could forget that you're not in the United States. The differences are much more subtle. But if there's subtle differences in the way we eat, if there's subtle differences in our culture, I suspect there are also subtle differences in the way we talk about and manage money. And speaking of money, whether from Canada or the United States, many of you What's Up Nexters are freelancers, small business people, and consultants. And what's even harder than getting that big job or account? It's getting paid for it once the work is done. That's why we're giving a big thanks to Joust for supporting What's Up Next. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. PayArmor, Joust's invoice payment guarantee product, supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com backslash W-U-N and enter the promo code W-U-N and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash W-U-N. Bob Lai is the writer and author behind the popular blog Taucan. He started his fire journey in 2011 and became one of Canada's first financial bloggers. And what, Bob, was it 2014? Yeah. Welcome to the What's Up Next podcast. Hey there. We're really happy to have you. Tom Drake is the writer and creator of the Maple Money blog and podcast. He helps Canadians as well as everyone else learn to live the life we want to live. He also collaborates with J.D. Roth on Get Rich Slowly. Tom, we're really happy to have you. Welcome to the What's Up Next podcast. Thanks for having me on. And last but not least, Chrissy is the author of Eat, Sleep, Breathe, Fi. She explores being financially independent in Vancouver on one income with kids. You also are a veteran of panel discussions. Is that right? Because on your podcast, you guys have panels? Yes, we do. And it's lots of fun. Well, I'm happy to have you all on. Bob, I want to start with you. One of my favorite interviewing techniques is to ask bloggers about the bylines of their mm-hmm. blogs. What is the byline for your blog? Taiwanese Canadians' Quest for Joyful Life and Financial Independence. I'm actually embarrassed to admit that I never put together that your name of your blog is Taucan because you're a Taiwanese Canadian. <laughs> 
Yeah, a lot of people don't recognize that. That was a name I created when I started using the internet back in the 90s. Why is country of origin so important? Why is that such a big part of your blog? I think Canada is very different than the U.S. We speak differently. We think differently. Culturally, there's some subtlety between Canada and U.S. So I think that's very important to distinguish that difference. And really, there are tons of U.S. bloggers, especially in terms of fires, just getting started. So it was nice to get more Canadian perspective. Before we talk about those differences, Bob, are Canadian financial bloggers a rarity? They're actually more than I would imagine, but certainly not compared to the extent in the U.S. Per capita, we're probably about the same, but (laughs) obviously we're a tenth the population, so there's going to be a lot less of us. Chrissy, I was looking up on your blog and the byline is Phi in Vancouver on one income with kids. Is this unique for Canada? I think it is. It's becoming more so, especially with the younger generations. I am very lucky that I have been able to be a stay-at-home mom, but not many people can afford that these days. In in my neighborhood in particular, I'm noticing that there are less and less single-income families, whereas this neighborhood used to be one of the neighborhoods where there was always a stay-at-home mom volunteering at school, and there are hardly any now. So it, it is changing. Tom, let's talk about the actual differences between the U.S. and Canadian system. Let's start with earning. Are wages different across the border? Is it a big difference in what people are making in Canada versus the U.S.? It probably depends on the career you go into. We've got the free health care, and that can affect some of the wages on those kind of careers. But if you're a regular financial analyst like I have been, I don't know if there's a, a huge difference on either side of the border. So just coming from high tech, I would say there's at least 20-30% difference between like working high tech in Vancouver versus working high tech in the Silicon Valley or even Seattle, for example. Meaning that you would make more in Silicon Valley versus Oh Vancouver. yeah, for sure. Yeah, I could easily make more in Seattle or in, in Silicon Valley. And Bob, are we talking about real dollars here? Because there's also a conversion rate, right, from Canadian to American currency. Yeah, it would be real dollars. Yeah, for sure. And Chrissy, I often hear at least people in the United States lament about Canada. They say, well, it's the taxes. Is the taxation system different than the United States? Definitely. When we hear about American bloggers talking about reaching FI and they can get to a 0% tax rate, that's difficult in Canada to get to that. But of course, we are paying for our healthcare system and our education system is somewhat subsidized by the government. So we are getting it back in a different form. But yes, the taxes are a significant factor in Canada. The taxes is a lot different compared to the US. For example, we can't file as a couple. We have to file individually. Having said that, there's enough tax credit, depending on how you structure your retirement fund, you could get to almost 0% tax. One thing to keep in mind, state taxes are so different. I know a, a blogger in California who worked out the math and does pay more in California in taxes than he would if he lived in Canada. So, so there's such a, a wide difference in the states where I think Canada's a little more level across the provinces. We still have the same issue. Different provinces have different tax rates. And some of the property taxes I've seen in the states are ridiculous as well. I thought my three or $4,000 property tax was high until I heard about people paying 15000 in some states. So <laughs> almost more of a provincial and state difference than it is country versus country. Yeah, let me tell you, here in Chicago, in the United yes. States, a $3,000 property tax sounds like a dream. So, <laughs> Even so here in did- Vancouver. Yes. <laughs> do you guys know what the highest federal tax bracket is in Canada? Like, how high do the taxes go? Is it 47%? Is yeah. that the highest marginal? Sounds right. It does become this federal and provincial mix, though, too. So it depends on what province you're in. So it's not like we're talking about 70% taxes or something outrageous like that on the federal level. No, no. Bob, tell me a little bit about entrepreneurship. I mean, does the Canadian government support entrepreneurship? Is that something that's a big part of the Canadian financial independence story the way we like to talk about it in the U.S.? I think so. I mean, the government certainly has all these incentives and training programs for encourage you to start your own business. In terms of side hustle, I think not as much compared to some of the American bloggers, I want to say. We're so busy talking about side hustles in a lot of these personal finance blogs. I'm not sure I hear as much of that kind of talk in the Canadian personal finance blog. Are side hustles a big part of the pathway? 
I'm not sure if it really is. I also don't hear as much about it in the Canadian scene. And I'm not sure if it's partly because there's just less of those kinds of apps and platforms available in Canada, but there certainly are bloggers and podcasters who do side hustles up here. I, I think more and more of them are coming up to Canada from the US, which is great. I think it opens up other avenues of hustling that weren't available even two or three years ago. Chrissy nailed exactly what I was thinking is in Canada, we always seem to be sort of a step behind. And maybe it's the population thing when it comes to these apps, all these sort of side hustle apps are making things so much easier to make money online. And even in the real world, like with an Uber or something like that, Uber's been coming in the last few years. Lyft is behind that. It's always kind of a few years behind. It always feels like we're kind of playing catch up a little bit. Funny you ask that because I just wrote a post about stop monetizing everything you do. There's general sense that you have to side hustle everything you do, make money from every hobby you do, and eventually just not fun anymore. While it's good to make more income, you also need to find a balance between enjoying what you do on a daily basis versus thinking you need to make money every single second of your life doing whatever you could with side hustle in your main business. There's also the issue of saving. Talk about the cost of goods in Canada. I mean, if we can't save, it's going to be really hard to make it to our financial independence goals. Are the costs of things different? Is it more expensive in Canada? Generally, it's a little more expensive. I've been in the grocery industry for years, and and I know that food exchange rates out of the way is going to be more expensive. There's longer shipping costs and a lot of produce and all that sort of factors into our prices. So food's one of the big ones off the top of my head. Cost of real estate can be pretty crazy. We never had a drop in 2008, 2009 like the US did. We had a dip out of concern, but we didn't have the same financial issues in play to begin with. So we kind of just kept going up and we've never really dropped. (laughs) If the States was in a bubble, we're that plus about 15 years. And I know we in the US talk a lot about getting medicines from Canada, but are there people running over to the US to buy goods or to spend money? I I live right by the US border. So um, I drive over every two weeks to get gas. And it's about anywhere from 20 to 25 cents per liter difference. So per gallon times about four, so almost a dollar difference. Yeah, that used to be one of our favorite hobbies or pastimes <laughs> to run across the border to buy all kinds of things. It wasn't uh, not just gas, but there was groceries and clothes for our kids. We found that things were way cheaper, even with the high exchange rate. But we've been doing less and less than that. of that. I, I'm finding that the prices are actually narrowing and that there isn't as much disparity in recent years. I'm not sure why that is. There are some things like groceries that are still significantly cheaper, but most goods, electronics and clothing, things like that are actually coming closer in price. So maybe less runs across the border than there used to be. Yes, sadly, we loved it, but there's just less incentive to go now. Tom, it's not just obviously in how you save, but in what vehicles you use to save. We talk in the US a lot about 401ks. We talk about pension systems. How is Canadians tax deferred savings programs? Do they line up similarly to the US's? Maybe similar, but they're definitely not the same because obviously this is government-based programs, so, so every, everything changes. My favorite is the TFSA here in Canada. I think it beats any American program where you can put money in every year and it grows tax-deferred, but you can also withdraw it and you can keep that contribution room. So if you put in $6,000 and it grows to 10000 you pull that out, then the next year you can put 10000 back in. Not that you want to be pulling it out necessarily, but uh, at least the option's there. And it's actually a great plan towards retirement. So I actually have a page on my website where I outlined the differences between the accounts in Canada and the US. And I was actually pleasantly surprised to find that Canada has some advantages with our retirement accounts. And one of the advantages is that we can roll over our unused contribution room from year to year. So if you can't top up your account this year, you can do it the next year or indefinitely you can keep rolling it along, which is really nice. We seem to have a lot less withdrawal penalties and rules. So RSPs, we can withdraw any time. We have to pay the tax on it, but there's no real other penalty other than having to pay the tax on it as if it was income that year. And our TFSAs, there's no penalties. There's no early withdrawal rules and things like that. And Tom, we know that there's not only earning and saving, but investing is also quite important. How is investing different in Canada and the US? I mean, do you guys get Vanguard funds? Do you get total market indexes? How is it different if you're investing outside the United States? 
It's much more similar now, but this is another thing we were catching up on. We were a little slower with robo-advisors, but we're kind of at that point now where you can buy a single ETF that'll kind of give you the whole market, or you can go into a slew of different uh, robo-advisor options. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where we were behind, but it, it's definitely caught up. I should dispel one myth too about the tax-free savings account is you can truly invest in that as well. Many Canadians mess this up where they think it's it says savings account, so you have to just get a low interest savings account, but you can invest in ETFs even in that. And one thing I'd like to add is when I first started looking into DIY investing and a lot of the info was from the US, I was so confused about what an in- index fund was because we really, we don't, we still don't really have those in Canada. They exist, but they're super high MER and they're just not worth getting. So for Canadians, the closest comparison to index funds are just index ETFs. So it's unfortunate you have to buy and sell them like stocks. They're not as easy to use as an index fund, but they're close enough. And once you learn how to trade with them, they're just as easy to use. Talking about index fund, um, I think in general, it's getting pretty close compared uh, between US and Canada. We have Vanguard, iShare, a bunch of other ETFs. So yeah, it's getting a lot closer. The one thing we might not have in terms of trading platforms is a lot of the discount brokers are still charging per trade commission. Some discount brokers do allow you to do free ETF trading. But I know in the US, there are certain brokers that allow you to do fractional shares, for example. I don't think that's available in Canada yet. When you're starting out, that becomes very beneficial because you could, say, put in $100 each month and buy fractional shares rather than have to buy a whole share. I think it's great when you're starting out. And Bob, in the United States, there's a lot of talk about investing only nationally, right? So you have a lot of people who put all their money into U.S. index funds. And we know that around the world, there's this home turf advantage idea that people tend to invest in their own countries. Is it the same for Canada or do people tend to do more international investing? Home bias is something that I think runs deep within each country. Unfortunately, with Canada, if you buy index funds for Canada, you're very financial and energy heavy. So it's important to diversify, especially into the U.S. market and especially internationally. I would say most people do heavily have a home bias. I mean, myself included, we are trying to do more international exposure, but sometimes it's hard because your choices are limited. We have this very common idea that Coach Potato Portfolio, where Canadians will invest a quarter Canada, a quarter US, quarter international, and then a quarter bonds. It would be the easiest version of that. Like Bob was getting at, we're way too heavy in Canada <laughs> because there's just not that much there. Yeah, just for example, if you want to invest in uh, consumer staples or consumer discretionary, in Canada, your choices are very, very limited. Right? We don't have things like Procter & Gamble in Canada. I mean. The closest I could think is like Saputo, which makes milk and cheese. Our choices are very limited. It's definitely good to tap into the U.S. market, especially a lot of these American companies are giant international companies. So you're, you're further diversifying that way. And Tom, I was interested in the fact when you were talking about the couch potato investment style, you mentioned a fourth Canada, a fourth U.S., and then a fourth international. You didn't include U.S. as part of international. It was its own category. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's that's probably one of the things we're doing well. Like Bob was saying, like there is so much in the U.S. to invest in. There's so many companies. International to us does not include U.S. It's everything else. Uh, and then you can get into like emerging market ETFs and stuff if you want to get a little fancier with it. But that simple quarter, quarter, quarter plan is pretty common here, um, at, at least as far as I see. Chrissy, we love to not only invest in the stock market, but in real estate. Around here, you hear a lot of people talking about house hacking or becoming landlords. Is there as much competition and interest in real estate? There's definitely a ton of interest. (laughs) Obviously, our markets are just crazy here, especially in the big cities. But unfortunately, as far as investing, it's a lot harder in Canada from what I can tell. I actually, for a while before I started to do something called the Smith Maneuver, where I pulled the equity out of my house to invest with, uh, I looked into real estate investing and I could not make the numbers work anywhere within an hour of Vancouver. I just couldn't. It was nearly impossible. So I envy the Americans who are able to buy really cheap and rent at a really high price. It just doesn't exist in the major centers in Canada. I just want to add, I think there's this important rule. I think it's called 10% real estate rule. Yeah, that thing doesn't work, especially in Vancouver. 
One percent. Yeah, it just tells you how much I know about real estate investing. One <laughs> percent doesn't even fly in Metro Vancouver area. Right? No, in Vancouver, it's like point one percent or something crazy yeah. like that. Yeah. With one million dollar, you might be lucky to get a shit that's falling apart. <laughs> Tom, this conversation reminds me of uh, two of your countrymen who are friends of mine, Bryce and Christy, are famous for eschewing homeownership. Is homeownership difficult in Canada? I think it's very difficult now. I was lucky enough. I bought a little townhouse in early 2000s, so I kind of got in before our 15 to 20 year run up here in real estate prices. So that allowed me to keep going along with it. On the slight drops like 2009, I was actually able to then move into a bigger house. So I am no real estate expert either, but it's a bit of luck that it got in early. And when I was ready to move into a full detached house, it just happened to be during the dip. So I was able to still take some money from the first place and come out ahead. If I was someone now though, I don't get the math. I don't see how someone could get into homeownership if they're in their 20s. I can appreciate what Bryce and Christy have to say about home ownership. It isn't easy, as Tom said, especially for younger people trying to start out now. Honestly, I'm not sure how they can do it because it requires such a large portion of your income. But at the same time, being a homeowner myself, especially now with kids, I can't imagine being a renter and doing that. I just wouldn't feel secure having to move around every few years and not knowing for sure if I can stay put. When you own your house, it's yours and you can stay there and you don't have to worry about moving your kids to a different school or anything like that. So it's hard to say whether it's the right thing for you. It really depends on your situation. Bob, I assume you own a house. Was there ever any thought of renting and not owning? Kind of similar to Tom. We bought an apartment in Vancouver and sold it and we moved to the suburb. Rental has never been really something we consider. We've been lucky that we could own a house where we live as an older neighborhood and we were seeing houses on my street, like houses getting knocked down and new houses being built and selling for, you know, under $2 million, for example. So definitely hard to imagine what people in their 20s need to do to save up to buy a house. Tom, I want to transition the conversation a little bit and really drill down into some of the differences between the U.S. and Canada. By far the biggest one I hear people talk about is healthcare. In fact, we did an episode recently, Is Healthcare the Great Financial Independence Killer? And I think for a lot of people in the U.S., fears about healthcare costs really hold them back from retiring early. As the Canadian system stands right now for you, do you feel like that's an issue that's just taken care of? Or do you guys still have to worry about healthcare costs? I think we have to worry about a little bit. One of the misconceptions that I hear out of the States is that this idea that everything's just free for us. We still have to pay prescriptions, things like dental care you would pay for, a lot of the psychiatrists and massage and everything like that you would pay for. Our free system is hospital visits, doctor visits, things like that. But it goes a long way. I've considered moving to the States because of real estate prices. <laughs> I could come out so much further ahead if I moved from Alberta to Texas or something like that. But the healthcare is the other side of that where I'm like, I wouldn't have a mortgage, but I'd have to worry about healthcare. It's not as free as some people think, but it is a nice safety net to have there. I think for the most part, we pay through our taxes. In BC, I think we no longer have to pay for the MSP premium. So Usually you have to pay each month too for your health care. So you're, in a way you're still paying. But I think the nice thing, uh, just to add what Tom said, is that in Canada, you don't have to worry about hospital visits or doctor visits. Even at FinCon, one of the keynote speakers, I think Sharon was talking about her incident with her brain tumor. They were going through her bills when she was recovering and found there was like a doctor's fee. And it was because the doctor wasn't on her insurance network. I was sitting with a bunch of Canadians, we all looked at each other, we were like, what do you mean? We don't understand this. So that's something we don't really have to think about. Extended health, like massage, physiotherapy, dental, yeah, we have to pay for that. But if you're working, usually your, your work has extended health cover that. Now, if you're fired, you probably need to find some sort of insurance to cover those, which is something I've been trying to research a bit more in terms of if we retire early and we want to get the extended health coverage, what do we do? Yeah, I do have to say I'm very grateful for the Canadian system. Imperfect as it is, there are 
issues, but I follow A Purple Life. And she talked about one time where she was sick. She, I think, had pneumonia, but she wasn't sure if it was pneumonia. And she didn't want to go to the doctor because it would be 100, 200 bucks, whatever it was for the checkup. And she feared them saying, oh, nothing's wrong with you. Go home. And she just paid 200 bucks for it. Whereas here, I, I remember when I had pneumonia, I actually had pneumonia in both of my lungs when my kids were little. And I can't imagine sitting at home and thinking, oh, should I go or should I not? Because I don't want to pay the 200 bucks. Like, it's awful to have to make that decision for your health to decide whether it's worth paying for it or not. Of course it is, but I can see her point. You don't want to go to be told you're fine and pay 200 bucks for that. Tom, do you think most people like Chrissy feel pretty happy with the healthcare system as it stands in Canada? I think so. Uh, we have a bit of a wait time issue on the other side. Chris was talking about, oh, I don't want to go and pay the $200. Sometimes I have the other side of that where if you think something's wrong, it's like, oh, I don't want to go wait in the, <laughs> in the waiting room for, for hours <laughs> or uh, things that get booked that might take months to get to. But I would take it over the other option. I think it's better to have a, a wait time because everybody's going to the doctor for everything than to have n- people not going to the doctor. In terms of wait time, there's definitely a misconception that with the Canadian health system, you have to wait for a long time. I think if you're really, really sick, they do prioritize patients. If you're like critical, you get prioritized over somebody that may have knee surgery, for example. It's not perfect, but it works. Chrissy, the other thing that I hear most Americans concerned about, one is healthcare, but the other is the cost of college. So you have kids. How is the cost of the university system in Canada compared to the U.S.? A lot of the U.S. universities are privatized and carry incredibly high yearly costs. Is it the same in Canada? It definitely sounds like it's much cheaper in Canada, even in the big city centers or in Eastern Canada, where the biggest universities are. It sounds like our costs, while they can get high, are relatively reasonable. And it is possible to save up enough in your RESPs. And I don't know if Americans know about that. It's called the Registered Education Savings Plan in Canada, where the government pitches in and matches a part of your contributions, which is great. So we've done that for our kids. We've maxed it out every year. And we have enough that it should pay for even the most high-end education they should have. And we may even surpass what they'll ever need, which is great. So we're lucky we have that system here, as well as having the lower tuition costs to start with. Tom, in the U.S., it's not uncommon for a person to leave college or certainly graduate school with fifty dollars to $100,000 in debt. Do we not even see that in Canada? I think we see it, but at least media-wise, it doesn't seem to be as big of a deal. In the States, you always hear about these huge student loans. And and like Chrissy said, the cost is cheaper. We do have the RESP. There's a lot of ways to get it down. But certainly someone can become a lifelong university attender and, 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 and rack up those costs. I think it depends on which field you get into. Like in uh, medical school, it's pretty easy to rack up student debt. I went through engineering and that's definitely one of the higher cost degrees. First of all, the lower tuition cost helps. Also, there's scholarship, there's bursaries available. And then in, on top of that, you can utilize the RESP. Everything helps a little bit. You certainly don't hear as much in terms of students coming out from school with like, a huge amount of debt. Obviously, people will, will carry some debt, but not like 100000 200000 like what you hear from many Americans. I'd like to take a pause for a moment and recap. In the first half of the show, Chrissy, Tom, and Bob elucidated the differences between personal finance in Canada and the U.S. After the break, we'll ask the all-important question, which is better? But before we do, I wanted to say thanks to Jows for supporting What's Up Next. Have you ever thought about starting your own business? Perhaps you wanted to begin a side hustle or passion project, but weren't sure where to begin. Ensuring a steady income will always be one of the first things you think of and could be the reason why you don't eventually take the leap. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. Business banking can feel complicated, but Joust makes it easy. Pay Armor, Joust's invoice payment guarantee product, supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com backslash W-U-N and enter the promo code W-U-N and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash W-U-N. 
All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Chrissy, one of the ways that in the U.S. we try to defer all these costs is we talk about geo-arbitrage. So we talk about geo-arbitrage within the United States, right? There's some places that are, are much higher cost of living and others lower cost of living. Or we talk about geo-arbitrage outside of the United States. Do you guys feel in Canada you're having these same conversations? I don't hear as much of it, definitely not in Canada. I don't hear about people moving to different provinces. It seems like we really like where we live and uh, our families are here or whatnot or our jobs are here. And I don't know, maybe it's just me and I'm in a bubble, but I don't hear much of that geo-arbitrage chatter in uh, Canada. Among my friends, definitely some have done that. Not from a fire point of view, but from a financial point of view, like quite a number of my friends moved to the interiors of BC. So where housing prices are cheaper with a high tech background, it's kind of tough to move to a small town. Right? For, for myself, it is not possible. In terms of moving internationally, I've heard people done that as well, but certainly not as big compared to the US, probably per capita basis, because we just don't have as many people in Canada compared to the US. So you certainly don't hear as many, but I think there are people out there. Tom, I noticed at the beginning of this interview, you talked about the consideration of moving to the U.S. And I think I've read in Bob's blog that he's somewhere in the distant future thought of maybe moving to Asia. And I know Chrissy has mentioned that she's a Japanophile. (laughs) So it sounds to me like in some ways, Canada really is financial independence nirvana, but it also sounds like people entertain the idea of leaving. Is that fair to say? Two problems I have is real estate like we've covered and weather. Um, so so it, <laughs> when it's winter, I tend to fire up the, the real estate sites and start looking <laughs> at, at the different prices. Uh, Bob and Chrissy, they're in Vancouver where it's a lot nicer than what I get sometimes. Part of it's weather, it's not even a money consideration. But certainly the real estate prices are a problem. If I can live in the States for like half the real estate price easily, for Christian and Bob, it's probably a quarter. <laughs> so you, you could sell a place for a million and go live for 250. Real estate prices are the big one for me, but, but there's also weather. I was about to say big enough for you to tackle the healthcare cost issue and move to the U.S.? <laughs> I figure the real estate savings and getting insurance could probably offset that, but then it just kind of becomes kind of the culture of it, like dealing with the different healthcare and things like that. I'd go from being this uh, supposed personal finance expert to not knowing a thing about (laughs) all all these different things down in the US. From a personal point of view, a really good friend of mine uh, moved down to the state for work four years ago. So he's in Silicon Valley. I mean, salary is really high, but he's now looking to move back. There's stuff in Canada that he misses. I think it it goes both ways and it really depends on your situation. Obviously, you need to weigh all the 
different uh, parameters and figure out what makes most sense for you. For me, I fantasize about uh, geo-arbitrage all the time. (laughs) Even within Canada, I talk to Court from Modern Family, and she tells me how cheap this and that is in Alberta where she lives. And it's not just real estate. There's so many other things. There is the gas and insurance, all those types of expenses. They're significantly cheaper in other places. And I really have to wonder, you know, we could instantly be five if we moved to one of these places. But for us, the really tough thing is our families are here. We have big families on both sides. And for me, I can't leave that. And I love Vancouver. I was born and raised here and I can't imagine leaving this place. And when it's summertime and it's sunny and gorgeous and you go to the beach, you're like, why would I ever leave? And it's hard. It's hard to make that choice. It's not all about money sometimes. I'm origin from Taiwan, my wife's origin from Denmark. So we definitely have talked about eventually in the future moving to, to Taiwan or moving to Denmark. Now, Taiwan is definitely in terms of the cost of living a lot lower compared to Canada. Like I was just in Asia a couple of months ago and $10 Canadian would buy you like tons of food eating out. Like I'm currently in Denmark. We happen to go to Starbucks, get a cup of coffee. A grande chai latte was about 11 Canadian. Wow. <laughs> I was shocked. <laughs> Usually it's about five Canadian in Vancouver. It really depends on what your ultimate goal is. If your family's only in Canada, it's sometimes really hard to just move away just for the money. Tom, I probably met you the first time in person at FinCon, and I noticed that a lot of the Canadian bloggers hung out together. There was certainly a camaraderie there. Do you guys see yourself as a separate community within the larger personal finance, financial independence community? I think so. People like Bob are obviously hanging out in the in the fire circles too, but the Canadians do always tend to hang out together. It kind of does become this slight culture difference where <laughs> where it's easy for Canadians to hang out together and, and drink beer. Some reason we just end up running each other all the time. This year in Washington, D.C., there were a few Americans that ended up hanging out with the Canadians all the time and became the honorary Canadians. Every time they run into them, like, oh, again, ran into Canadians. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we stuck around. Just kind of funny <laughs> that happens. Well, I've never been to FinCon. I would love to, but I've heard about these Canadian gatherings. But just to speak to that, that's why I started a podcast with two co-hosts called the Explore FI Canada podcast, where we are trying to connect more Canadians across Canada because it feels a bit like we're the underdogs. Uh, We are just underrepresented in the world of the FI community. And I think there are many more of us now that are jumping into this community. And I think we need a voice and we, we want to band together because there are differences and those differences do make or break our FI plan sometimes. So it's really important that we have each other to support and uh, guide each other through this process. Yeah, I love that Chrissy and Phil Canadian started this podcast. And for myself, I started this Fire Canada interview on my blog and where I interview Canadians who are either financially independent, retired early or fired or close to it. And it's amazing to see how many people have reached these financial milestones. And it's so different interviewing them because I feel that within the FIRE community in general, it's very American-focused. We don't get too much Canadian stories. So by doing these interviews, we're getting more Canadian content out there and definitely get readers emailing me about, oh, this is great. I really appreciate you giving this Canadian perspective. So I think that's important to continue and similarly for Chrissy's uh, podcast as well. What are the big differences, Bob, you see in the Fire in Canada series that you're doing? Are there one or two big things that are purely Canadian? I know we've talked about a lot of them so far, but anything come up that you say, aha, this is really a Canada issue uh, that you won't see in the U.S.? We apologize a lot. (laughs) No, (laughs) just kidding. There are people that that have done real estate investing, but they started in the 80s or in the 70s, right? Whereas Nowadays, with younger folks, it's almost stocks is more the primary weapon for getting to fire. I think there's a little bit of subtleties between Canadians and Americans in general. Just when you start talking about RSPs and TFSAs and RESPs, it's just easier to understand when you talk in Canadian language versus referencing to, to the American counterparts. All right, Tom, I'm going to ask you the million-dollar question here. Is it easier or harder to manage your money to become financially independent 
in the U.S. or in Canada? That is a good question. <laughs> um, uh, I, I guess I don't know enough about the U.S. side to be too positive. I personally think it's probably a little easier in the U.S. right now. We've harped on it a few times, but I think real estate is one of the big ones if, if someone's going to truly kind of get ahead. Again, just to bring it back to something we mentioned before was kind of that entrepreneurial advantage of some different options there. I think it's all individual results kind of thing. I definitely think it's a little bit easier to get fired in U.S. Just for example, if you want to jump between jobs, that especially in, in a bigger city, it's easier to do that, I think, without moving uh, cities to cities. And there's just generally speaking, bigger populations, right? So you, need, you have more jobs to choose from. Uh, real estate is definitely a big part in that. And I think another thing is in terms of real estate, in the U.S., you could write it off in your income tax, right? The, the mortgage you pay, you could write off, whereas in Canada, you can't. So right off the bat, you're, you're already cutting off a lot of your, your income tax using if you could write off your mortgage. Yeah, I would echo everything that Tom and Bob have said. It is easier in the States in a lot of ways, uh, for instance, with the real estate as well as the higher incomes. And uh, a lot of the other costs are lower in the US. But I, I have to say that in Canada, we are catching up, if not fully caught up as far as platforms that we can use and investments we can access in order to grow our savings. So in a lot of ways, we are keeping up with the US now. I just wish we could earn more, but <laughs> that's not something that we can really control sometimes. I was about to say, most of us in the U.S. wish we could earn more, too. So (laughs) (laughs) you're not alone on that one. Tom, tell me, do you think the personal finance community is growing in Canada? Are we going to see a lot more blogs and podcasts? I hope so. I started out way back in 2009, and a lot of the bloggers that were around at that time have come and gone. Actually, every blogger I read (laughs) before I started mine is now gone. There was a real drop-off for a while there, and now... I see a lot popping up. I've got a, a Facebook group where we kind of all gather just the, the bloggers and some journalists. And it's, it's over 100 people, which it was actually pretty surprising that there's that many people in this sort of media area of either being a blogger or writing for one of the news outlets. So it's growing and, and hopefully it continues to. Yeah, I think it's growing too. And I think Bob said earlier that the fire movement in Canada is just in its infancy. And I would have to agree. I feel like it's just gaining a foothold in Canada and it's just going to grow from here, which I think is amazing. I don't think everyone needs to retire early, but for people to just be more money savvy and just to handle their finances more successfully, I think that'd be fantastic if more people could hear our message and learn from us. How can you lose with that? Bob, I'm thinking that you and Tom are the OG personal finance bloggers of Canada. I wouldn't say that. I, I've only been blogging for about five years. There's been people been blogging longer than, than I have. But like what Tom says, some of them have dropped off. It's a little bit sad to see that. But, you know, life happens. And you see that with Sunny American personal finance bloggers as well, right? But it's also good to see there are new bloggers popping up and, um, you know, writing some some contents from a different perspective. I, I think that's really cool because ultimately personal finance, there's only really a handful of topics you talk about, right? Even in FIRE, what's unique with different blogs out there is you give your personal story, your, your personal perspective, and somebody may relate better to Tom's story or Chrissy's story than my story versus my story might relate better for someone else. So the more more blogs out there, the better. Tom, what Chrissy said a moment ago reminds me, in the U.S., we do still talk a lot about retire early. Is that less of an issue in Canada? Is early retirement not the goal? It hasn't been for me. I've been very much on the FI side only because I I don't know if it matters which side of the board you're on. I I think the retire early thing for a lot of people is kind of false. Like Everybody's kind of doing something normally. That's half the goal is to have some kind of thing on the side. (laughs) So I have a bit of an issue with retire early as a concept. Yeah, I have to say personally, I really hate the term fire, financial independence, retirety. That's why in my tagline for my blog, I don't mention anything about retirety. In people's mind, retirety is really like you're not doing anything and you're just sitting on the beach drinking pina colada. But if you look at most people that have retired, they're still working in some sort of form, right? Either still making money either through their blog or they have side hustle and such. Focusing on buy is more important because that allows you to do something that you truly enjoy, regardless whether you make money or not. So if you want to volunteer, 
at a, a charity, great. You could do that for seven days a week. Whether you make money or not doesn't really matter. If you get paid, great, but isn't important anymore. I think that'd be power of five that we need to focus on rather than talking about retire early. And then, and then you have these internet trolls saying, oh, you're not really retired because you're working and getting money through this, this, this. And it's like, well, who cares? I'm financially dependent. I get to do what I want to do. That's the most important part. And to build on what Tom and Bob have said, I also try to steer away from the retire early part of FIRE. I, I refer to it as FI rather than FIRE for the same reasons. I hate that the conversation gets steered towards uh, laying on the beach and just doing nothing because that's not reality for most of us. And I'm actually glad to see that the FI community is evolving and the message more is about the FI part and less about the RE, even though it's still there. It's so flexible the way that we define it now. And I, I'm glad that there's more of us telling our stories and redefining what retirement is. So I'm getting from this conversation as a whole is that personal finance is very similar in Canada and the US. We have certain issues that are different, maybe healthcare, maybe paying for college, maybe taxes, maybe earning, but those differences are becoming less and less every day. And furthermore, I know that there are a lot of people in the US who are jealous of the Canadian system. And it sounds like there are a lot of people in Canada who are jealous of the American system, maybe different parts of each, but it's an engaging conversation. And what I'm getting from this is that we're probably more alike than different. I'd like to end the show by giving each one of you a chance to tell us where we can find you and what's up next in your life. Tom, we'll start with you. Where can we find you and what's up next? You can find me at Maple Money and uh, we also have the podcast Maple Money Show, which for your American readers does include a lot of American guests. Uh, we just we keep the topics universal enough that it'll still apply. I also write at Get Rich Slowly and on RetireHappy.ca. Chrissy? So you can find me at my blog, eatsleepbreathefi.com or at my podcast, exploreficanada.ca. And as for what's up next for me at my blog, I'll be posting less frequently so I can go more in depth with some more complex topics. And on the podcast, we're continuing our FI school series. That's where we broken down FI into 16 easy lessons. And we'll just continue to connect with other Canadians through interviews and meetups and help spread the fire across Canada. And Bob, where can we find you and what's up next in your life? You can find me on my blog, talkin.com, the spell T-A-W-C-A-N. Um, and also you can find me on Twitter. I'm pretty active there, at talkin. And what's up in my life? I, I'm hoping to continue writing frequently. I, I've been posting six posts per month in uh, so far in 2019. So plan to continue doing that in 2020 and really on my call RFI journey and really get into more uh, number crunching posts because I do a lot of those. So just to do some simulations and, and show that FI is definitely possible in Canada. All right. This has been the What's Up Next podcast. I'd like to thank Tom, Chrissy, and Bob. That's a wrap. You ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the What's Up Next podcast. Well, now you can engage our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.diversify.com. That is D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com. And go to the top and just click on the podcast button. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the What's Up Next podcast Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. So I'd like to welcome back Jessica Garbarino. She is here to discuss the Facebook group this week, and we had some pretty interesting articles, but what I want to discuss today is a tweet, and it's a tweet about college. Jessica, you pointed this one out to me. It was a little controversial, right? It was. It was an interesting discussion around investment versus college, and I just thought it'd be something interesting to talk about. Yeah, let me jump in and actually read it. It's just a tweet, so it's pretty short, and it comes to us from W. Keith Campbell. That's at W. Keith Campbell on Twitter, and this is what he wrote in his tweet. It said, question on college. 
Daughter number one receives nice letter from Yale saying to apply. Includes cost calculator. Cost for her is $306,000. If she invests three hundred and six dollars and serves for 30 years, she ends up with $2.5 million by the age of 48, $5 million at 56, and easily $10 million at 65. Why would she pick Yale? That's a, a big question, isn't it, Jessica? It's a huge question because... I know that there's a lot of parents out there trying to weigh the cost of college and the you know cost and benefit of it. So when I saw this tweet, I thought to myself, wow, that's, that's an interesting way to propose it versus the education of what you would do if you put it in the market instead. Yeah, I think there are a few different questions here. The first one just appears to be, is the quality of a college education is the value of a college education what we thought it was a decade or two ago. And I have certain opinions on that, but I want to hear yours first. <laughs> I, I have opinions as well. <laughs> I want to know who came up with that gold standard of a bachelor's degree as, as the gold standard for hiring. I think in a lot of ways, it's very antiquated. I think what happened was, is people were given an availability of education that was fantastic, but I don't think it matches up necessarily with career and job training. So I think there's a huge disconnect in this market nowadays. I'll tell you, I'm a big fan of people getting a bachelor's degree. I just don't understand why it has to cost so much. So there have been studies out there that show that people who have a college degree do a lot better economically than those who don't. Now, that may be changing in our digital economy where you can go out and learn skills on YouTube, et cetera, that you probably couldn't do that 20 or 30 years ago. But all being said and done, I think it's a very reasonable idea for everybody to get a bachelor's. The question is, do you need to go to a high-priced, well-known university with the quality of education you get there or even the relationships you make serve you more than just getting your basic education from a community college or at least a state school, which is a lot less expensive? Are you anti-college itself? Like, do you think you can do fine without a bachelor's degree or do you fall more on the side that I do that probably getting the degree is a good idea, but why pay so much? I think, I think education is always good. I don't think it has to come in the form of a formal university degree. I mean, I have family members who, are, who make very nice incomes and never went to college. But I also think it depends on the type of person that you are. Are you receptive to learning that way? Not everybody learns well in a classroom setting. I know there are some very smart people, even in my own family, that never went to school, but they read a lot or they consume a lot of content and really think through things. So I think also the whole way how we deliver education has to change. That's probably a whole nother conversation. I mean, I'm not against it, but I don't think it's for everyone. And I don't think that everyone should have to do a four-year degree in order to have a job. And that certainly brings up the trades too. We talk a lot about the trades in this community. And certainly you could go and become a carpenter or a plumber or an HVAC person and probably make a very decent living, a decent wage. And if you have an eye for business, you may end up doing just as well as the doctors, lawyers, and highly educated people, even with graduate degrees. So I definitely buy that. There are some people who probably your basic four-year college education does not fit their needs, and they may be able to be highly successful going a different route. You and I can talk, but it's more interesting to hear what the people on Facebook say. For some reason, John Stoy <laughs> always seems to be our first comment. So like the last conversation you and I had, he is again. John asks, how would she borrow the 306K for a lump sum investment? I love when people do this. They take this theoretical idea and then they actually get to specifics and why it doesn't work. He then says, daughter goes to Yale, develops relationships that allow her to have the career of her dreams and become both wealthy and fulfilled. And this is a key question. The relationships you form, especially at a good, renowned college, could last you for the rest of your career, especially if you're going to go into business or medicine or law. Having those relationships might get you into graduate school. They might get you your first job. What do you think about those relationships? I actually do know someone who went for their MBA at a Ivy League school. I remember watching him because we ended up going on a business trip together and he ended up going to some happy hour that had a lot of his old 
colleagues from school there. And I could even see the dynamic where these people had a whole different way of connecting and who they could connect with that most people who went to maybe a standard, you know, four-year university may not have. However, that being said, I will say that social media has really leveled a lot of the playing field. I think there was a discrepancy maybe a generation ago, like when I was in college, you know, social media wasn't even around. Nowadays, I guess it depends on what industry you want to get into, right? There are a lot of the tech startups, those guys all dropped out of school. (laughs) So they never finished. And a good LinkedIn profile for a job like that will get you more jobs than possibly the connections you have. Right. Uh, Eliza Minimal MD wrote, connections are priceless, experiences are priceless, which kind of goes along with what you're just saying. But then Kelly Marie responded, but there is literally a price. Uh, right. And college costs are going up. I mean, my kids are 12 and 15, and I think about what it's going to take to send them. Even I'm in Chicago, right? So University of Illinois isn't even that cheap for an in-state school. I think it's like twenty five to 30000 a year as of today. And that's the in-state cost. Can you imagine that? I think private universities cost maybe fifteen to eighteen thousand when I was going to school, like a four-year private small liberal arts college. It, It just blows my mind that even the public universities are that expensive with in-state tuition. You're certainly almost assured to go into debt unless your family has planned well, well in advance. Alan Mueller says, goes to Yale for 306K, gets high paying job, controls expenses and retires in 10 to 15 years. Although to me, this begs the question, if you're going to retire in 10 to 15 years anyway, would there be a better way to do it in which you wouldn't have to go the 306K in debt? Because we know the power of compounding is if you start that much in debt, you're actually a victim of negative compounding. Whereas if you don't go to school and can start bringing in income, you start with the positive compounding immediately. The other thing I would bring up too is, and this is more of a psychological thing, but I'm sure you know, Being around people who have wealth and affluence in certain types of circles, you start buying into that lifestyle too. So if you're not somebody who's willing to really ramp down your lifestyle and chip away at that debt in big chunks, like I have friends who are lawyers, doctors, that sort of thing, but then they live the lifestyle that their um, colleagues are living, they're never going to pay that huge debt off. So you also have to be willing to sacrifice either on the front end going to school or on the back end when you're paying off that debt. You're saying as you get older, you get more refined tastes being in that (laughs) academic institution, you know? I I think, well, and and you're in that environment too, right? Because if you're in an Ivy League school, those generally, I'm saying generally, most of the people who are attending those institutions are used to a certain standard of living. You get caught up in that lifestyle markup. And Ashish Doshi says, the best part of the next bear market is that people will stop making such ridiculous calculations using 7.5% CAGR. No, Keith, the market does not just go up. And this is a, a real point too, is we are assuming that future returns will be similar to past returns. And there's certainly a huge segment of the market that's suggesting that the next 10 to 15 years of returns may be quite lower than previous, which means maybe it is a good time to actually be spending money. And when you have your high earning power in 10, 20 years, the returns might actually eventually end up to be much better. Yeah, they'll they'll favor you at that point. Although we know that timing the market is useless. So we can all guess about what's going to happen in the future, but uh, who knows? Brandon Bettis says, apply for scholarships, dumbass. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that's, that's, there's always another alternative, right? I mean, um, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure there's quite a few people too at these institutions that are on some sort of scholarship, the ones who can't foot the bill, but I don't know how much of a dent it makes in a 300 $6,000. Well, you know, there is this whole movement about college hacking, right? I know a lot of people will go and do a year to a community college and then transfer to the local university. Certainly people are coming into college with many more credits than they've ever had. 
and then graduating early, I look back at my college education. I was pretty much done with college by the end of third year. My fourth year, I did, I think it was four or eight credits for the whole year, which was the equivalent of two classes. And I did a research elective. So I went to do some biology research four hours a week. And that was it. And I unwittingly saved my parents quite a bit of money, at least on the tuition portion. The cost of living was still up there. But I could have fully graduated probably in three years. And think about a full year's worth of -of out-of-state college I could have saved my parents. Well, the good thing is, is I do have nieces and nephews that are thinking about that. I have a niece, uh, one of my nieces who's going into high school next year. She's specifically looking at what they have called the post-secondary option, where she can start taking college classes at the community college for free her junior and senior year of high school. So by the time she gets into her first year, she's got almost a year of college paid for. So at least it gives me hope that some of the younger generation is seeing now what their millennial parents are dealing with, with college tuition and um, student loan debt and they're making better decisions. I like this response from Joanna Zarek. She says, if you are a parent and will be paying that price tag for college or K-12 private school, then I think it's a legitimate consideration. Alternative view is your kid could have seed money for a business instead of having college loans, could be a much better return. It's something to think about. Now, that's an interesting idea. So tell your kid, you know what, forget college. Here's your $300,000, start a business make some money and and go for it. I have a friend of mine who's actually purposely not saving in a college savings plan because she wants to give her kids the option of either going to school or starting a business or doing something non-traditional that people may not do with four-year education or trades or whatnot. So they're keeping their options open. And, And again, it's this generation, it's much easier to start a business than past generations. So that's a totally viable option. And in fact, Alan Donegan, one of my previous guests, would probably tell you that you should be looking at lean startup principles anyway. So maybe you shouldn't even spend that $300,000 of seed money. You should spend the time that you would have been at college starting a business. Now, I'm not saying I would do that nor suggest my children do that, but it is a provocative (laughs) thought. I think if you know your children and you kind of know what they tend towards to as well, I have siblings that college was not for them and they did not take that route. But those of us who did, we got our degrees and and moved forward. So I think it takes knowing your own children too. I want to bring up just two more responses from the Facebook group. One is from Ashley Evans, who was my guest this week on the What's Up Next podcast. She said, I'm just speaking for me, but I personally go to Yale which is funny because she will be attending Yale to become a delivery nurse. And then Kay Hushmand, who was guest on one of our episodes about Fix My Finances. This must have been about six months ago. And she wrote, there really is no reason, regardless of financial outcome, to forsake education and lifelong relationships. If you just want to make money, you go to any school, get a high-paying job in finance or law, Next question. And I kind of like that viewpoint. And the reason why is it's different than what you're going to see in the general personal finance or financial independence community. But it is a viewpoint that a lot of Americans have. And I don't know if it's necessarily wrong. You know, you talk to people who are used to making money for a living and they will tell you that money is infinite, but experiences and education are not. So they'll tell you, go for it. There'll always be ways to make more money. It might not be the conversation we always have in this community, but I think it's a valid response. Well, I'll tell you, I went to a private university for my first two years of undergrad and then transferred to the cheaper state school. But I've always said I would never give up that experience of those first two years because I met my very best friend. And I wouldn't trade that for the world. So for me, it was a good investment in my life. And I like to think about these non-monetary rewards too, because sometimes we forget them. I loved college. I definitely wouldn't have traded it for anything, but I do have my eye on the current trends as my children get older. They're 12 and 15. They're going to be college age soon. And it really makes you think about, well, what are you putting your money into and what's the return on investment? And that return on investment doesn't only have to be in their money-making abilities, but also in their life experiences and their ability to function as an adult and move on and take on adulting with competence 
And so that's something I'm certainly thinking about. I'm happy that I don't have to consider these things for myself anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's an interesting conversation that I think you're going to see repeated over and over again in our community. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, thanks for coming on and discussing this important topic. And we will talk soon again. Did we, yeah. Do we do Canada justice? <laughs> I think I we so. did. <laughs> I, like, I like that you wrapped it up, but you're right. I, I didn't even think about it, but we are actually more similar than we are different. It's always got to come from somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, so There's always, no free ride, right? Yeah. I think the, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? So it's, it's, it's easy to, to, to look on the other side and think, you know, they, they got a great system, but until you get to the other side, you don't know. It, it was just kind of really wrapping myself in the flag. <laughs> <laughs> I can't right. find I can't find mine. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. Wait, Tom, Tom, what you just said about wrapping yourself up in the flag, I'm just going to cut that in as your answer. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, because I really messed it up. <laughs> no, you didn't. I think, I think, again, that was one of those cases of me having inarticulate questions as opposed to <laughs> what I was just trying to draw was that the, the kind of byline or at least that, that kind of front Google search, you guys all mentioned Canada. Yeah, oh, yeah uh, I agree. Yeah, you don't you don't keep the video, right? Like, no, like you like I mean, you don't publish it. I don't care what you do. We don't. Yeah. So it it records. I just change my shirt otherwise. <laughs> Paul Thompson, is that you? Are you on the line? It is. I just dropped by to say hi to see how things were going around here, Doc. Did you get a listen to that episode about Canada and financial independence? Every word. I wouldn't miss it. I guess you'll be moving to Canada now, eh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just too cold. I, I don't care how good the services are. The, it's too cold. I can't, I can't handle it. You know, we still have a space for you on the podcast. You know, you can just show up anytime you want. The, the door's always open. So, Doc, did you tell them about the name change yet? As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.